Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. It's creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action verbs. This is season four of the Actor's Mind podcast. Season four style. Yeah. Season four. Season four. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to season four, episode four of the Actor's Mind podcast. My name is Ann Penner. I'm Kateri McRae. And we are sitting in this recording studio with Michael Schultz in the other room, and we are actually looking at each other's faces. This is so exciting. Like our whole the faces. The whole face. And it's great to see you. I love you, Kateri. <laughs> I'm like feeling a little overwhelmed, actually. Because I wasn't expecting it. I feel like the entire expectation trajectory of 2020 to 2021 is stage one panic. This is going to be terrible. Our lives are totally different. This is the worst. Stage two, actually get forced to engage with someone with the new rules yeah. and realize, I guess it wasn't that bad, right? There's this like, in my estimation, it's like maybe 80, 85% of a, a a typical in-person interaction gets achieved when you are on Zoom or when you have a mask on. Like, most of it is there. Yeah. But it is missing something. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's this, like, oh, my gosh, we get to do things the other way again. <laughs> yeah. Which is met by another stage of immediate panic of, I can't do it, I can't handle it, I haven't done it in so long. Yeah. And then you do it, and there's this, like, little mini euphoria yeah. almost from yeah. the normality of... I'm amped up, but I'm pretty happy about it right now. Yeah. I have to be honest with you. Uh, great. Oh, I have so much to say about that. Um, so welcome. In this true spirit of this season, we are following up our episode three uh, discussion with psychologist slash Dean uh, Danny McIntosh with a conversation just between Kateri and me, uh, which will return to a few, at least three of the ideas in that particular episode and conversation and try and take a deeper dive. Uh, So the goal here is we talk about acting, we talk about psychology, (laughs) and then how do we synthesize those? How does the other discipline inform the other? For me, that's acting and for Kateri, it's psychology and adding more psychological data and research and information to the pre-existing converse, conversation. So my title for today is called The Space Between. I mentioned to Kateri, I don't know if she's on board with that, but I am. And I heard it most recently from my friend Alison Watrous, who was one of our three guests on our first episode, when she was guest teaching for me. And to me, the reason this is a really great unifying phrase is... I'm really curious about the relationship between, say, one person to a character, like actor to character, actor to actor, so scene partner to scene partner, character to character, uh, actor to audience, maybe audience to audience, and also similarly the space between one idea bumped up against another and how Mm. they are in relationship to each other, the space between one tool and another, Oh, I love that when I see my students integrating this tool and this tool, right? Objective and substitution or uh, physicality and voice or metaphor and physicality. And then finally, the interdisciplinarity, one discipline bumped up against another, which is what our whole podcast is. So that's why I really like the title, The Space Between. Um, I just want to start with a couple quick responses to Danny, general ones, before we dive into the specifics. Is that that cool? Okay, great. Um, 
So his conversation got me thinking much more expansively about empathy, and we're about to drop into empathy and physical empathy in particular. And also, uh, I've been thinking more deeply about physicality, emotion, and cognition interacting Mm -hmm. with each other to build character. So as an actor, how am I using the tool of physicality, of emotion, and of of sort of intellect, ideas, cognition um, to build? build a three-dimensional character. And I would go so far as to say that those are a tri-directional relationship. I don't know if that works, a triangular relationship. But Danny was talking about, um, was talking about sort of uh, cognition and physicality or maybe emotion and physicality having bi-directional. That, for example, a smile and feeling happy works in either direction. Smile leads to happy or happy leads to smile. Um, those are sure. my main sort of uh, uh, big general takeaways from Danny. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I guess I would say like most concepts, I would probably venture that psychologists would agree that they're all interrelated. So from a psychology point of view, I'm really happy to talk about some of um, what some people call motor resonance or um, some of the uh, expressive mimicry, um, which you're calling physical empathy, which is a wonderful term that I'm not sure of a lot of psychologists. I think a lot of people would instantly know what you mean, but m- maybe it's not a term that's used in the literature. Um, unlike the definitions of cognitive and emotional empathy, which I think a lot of people do use really frequently. And I think that psychologists would agree that those are definitely interrelated and that probably the jury is still out evidence-wise on whether or not there is a very clear causal structure that one always comes before the other or if one is necessary or or sufficient for the others. Yeah, and I remember uh, Danny mentioning William James where I think it was like the – you feel the emotion, then you make sense of it, maybe. So, yeah. the Yes. And we've talked about, I love that, I think for an actor, it maybe doesn't matter what the order yeah. is, right? As long as you're playing with all of it. And there's, our previous conversation was specific to intrapersonal emotion. So specific to the emotion that one person feels. Um, there have been, there has been lots of debate, this sort of outside in versus inside out debate um, in terms of what comes first. And I think this is just an extension of that conversation into the interpersonal context where you now have not just one person, but now you have two people. And so when it comes to representing or dare I say understanding what someone else is, um, someone else's mind, I'm trying to use the broadest term as possible to not constrain myself to emotion or thoughts or perspective or physicality. Um, But when it comes to trying to understand someone else's mind, it's a similar conundrum where you have these different elements. There is a physical resonance and and possibly a physical understanding. There is a cognitive representation. There is uh, an emotional response, um, whether or not that response is um, an identical uh, mirroring of exactly what's yeah. happening or this um, appropriate uh, counter response. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, my understanding is that there isn't a strong uh, sense that we know which of those uh, comes first or if any of those are more necessary or primitive or from foundational than the others. Yeah, great. I'm excited how our uh, episodes are talking to each other. And so way back in episode one, um, Talia Goldstein was differentiating between cognitive empathy and emotional or affective. And in my non-psychology brain, I've just added the trifecta of physical totally. empathy. So I'm going to keep calling it that even if psychologists don't. I think you should. I mean, this is why trifecta is, is I really felt like I 
kind of got empathy by the end of episode one now. Now Danny's just bringing it in and returning it to my very naive sense of empathy, which is if you actually embody your idea of character. So I'm taking this idea of mimicking and actually pulling it into the actor to character relationship. If I find a body position that feels right for that character, I may actually feel or at least think the way that character might think in that moment. I find that really satisfying. So the questions I'm asking of both of us, I guess, is how do you um, encourage in yourself as an actor, how do you encourage physical empathy with the character, right? So we, we're constantly trying to find ways to empathize, to get inside the brain of, right? What? How do we do this physically? Um, the, the other questions I have, because I've been thinking a lot about it since we talked with Danny, is how do you, listener, work as an actor? Are you better physically? Are you better mm. at unpacking emotion? Or are you the intellect, right? So I think I'm best physically. <laughs> and when I get on my feet, I make a, I make, I find a lot of, I investigate and detect a lot of clues that maybe I don't detect when I'm just reading the script and have yeah. a more intellectual relationship. Um, and then finally, how does the character express themselves? Are they very physically expressive or are they not physically expressive and they're actually emotionally or perhaps just intellectually expressive? When it comes to the the intrapersonal cycle, I think the way that I have resolved this debate of what comes first is to say, and this isn't just my own solution to it, I think a lot of theorists have said the answer is it's a cycle and there are multiple multiple entry points to the cycle, but that each because each influences each other, um, that, you know, if you're, if the first thing that happens to you is you have a thought pop into your head, you know, um, what if my great aunt dies today? And then that starts to make you feel sad. And then that starts to make you shake and cry, yeah. uh, that, that, that the entry point into that was a thought versus someone whose entry point into it might be, um, a, a f- physicality, you know, yeah. might, might be, uh, the, the, the physical stance versus someone whose entry point is emotional. And, I think when it comes to the character building piece of it, I certainly would venture that different actors have different starting points. And the thing that I've always been interested in is when it comes to character building, is it just like emotion or is it just the way like I think emotion is, which is it doesn't matter what your entry point is as long as you get in to the cycle or do some people get a little stuck? Yeah. Right? So I have I have confessed on this uh, podcast before that when I was taking theater classes in college, which yeah. I took a lot, I got the note a lot of time, get out of your head, get out of your head, get out of your head. And I would have really complex cognitive representations yeah. of my characters that did not always translate into my performance. Yeah. You had a teacher who helped you with that where they asked you to put all of your attention on the scene partner. Yeah, that was that's one of the the things that helped me. Oh, what was I going to say? I was thinking of what you were saying about wondering if you do too much or yeah. too little table work. Yeah. Let's talk, let's, I mean, let's, let's bust ourselves in terms of us as actors, right? So Katir, you were just saying that the work you're doing in, as an undergrad, uh, your teacher might bust you for maybe being too much in your head, which is, I, f- I get frustrated with that phrase because I don't think an actor should be quote unquote out of their head. Yeah. It just wants to be integrated with, with, um, you know, more physical visceral experiences. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, that my conclusion to that is like I went into the right arm of this. Like I, that, yeah, like I think the <laughs> fact that I was like scribbling notes about what this all really means when I was in acting class is a good sign that I shouldn't have been an actor and that I should be a professor of psychology, <laughs> which I am. So uh, good job, twenty-two-year-old Kateri. Yeah, but um, I think that um, the, the thing I've always been really, really interested in is this problem of actor character discrepancy. Yeah. And we've talked before about how even if an even if a character is inattentive, let's say. Yeah. The the actor cannot be. Right. Right? If a character is I mean, if a character is uh intoxicated in some way, I mean clearly the actor shouldn't be, but even in the in the sense of not hearing what's going on, not being right. aware of their physical environment, that the actor in order to portray that actually has to be very dialed in to right. those things. And I, when it comes to this, like, I think one of the things that like tripped me up when I was quote unquote in my head too much was the fact that I had more knowledge than a character did, right? I was always really intimidated by um, things that surprised a character because I was like, I know that's coming. And I, I, some of, I guess I wonder whether or not all three domains, the cognitive, the emotional and the physical have a similar problematic differential between yeah. actor and character. Because for example, it's very clear to me that even if your character yeah. and my character, we're doing a scene, right? We're some Jacobian sisters. <laughs> Masha. <laughs> yeah. You're, Irina, you're, you're repressing, Olga. you're repressing stuff and I'm, I'm flighty. <laughs> you want to get to Moscow. <laughs> I need to, I need to get to Moscow and you can't stop thinking about your father. Yeah. And, okay. <laughs> it's a new, it's a new Chekhov play. <laughs> um, you know, even if we are at odds, And maybe that means physically that we are not in sync as characters. We need to be physically in sync in some way, right? And this is where what Danny was talking about in terms of maybe we're not mirroring each other. Maybe we're not not demonstrating to the audience that we are partners and paired in in stuff, but I need to be in tune with what you're doing. And then that, that disconnect seems very manageable to me on a physical level. Yeah. But then when you start getting to the cognitive level, I freak out. I'm like, no, no, no. But if I am thinking these thoughts as an actor, doesn't that surely interfere with the thoughts I'm thinking as the character? Right. Whereas somehow the physical level seems possible to me to have both of the things be true at once. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what to do with that, and I love it. Right, because I really enjoy the double life I lead when I'm performing of sort of, I'm the character. No, I'm just me. No, I'm the character. No, I'm just me. And I think that's, as we've talked about in the past, like that's a very, you should flow in and out of those things. Like you're never going to be fully in character. And and I've had the experience, I had it most recently with Grounded where Rick, the director would say, you're just a moment ahead there, right? Mm, so like yeah. I'm playing this line, right? And this is all she knows at this line. But the actor makes the mistake of playing too quickly or playing on that previous line the next moment yeah. in which her world, her universe has totally changed. And I can't do that. And I find that very difficult to do. And right <laughs> now I would say cognitively and physically are they're kind of equal. Mm. But you're saying they're sort of different for you, that one is physical is easier for you than cognitive. Maybe. Sure. Well, and then my question was emotionally. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a scene with somebody and your characters are not getting along? Like 
all out fighting, like really in disagreement with each yeah. other. Do you ever have a moment where you catch your fellow performer's eye? Yeah. And for that moment, you're relating to them as a performer and you're both like, yes, this is good. Oh, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So that to me gets into valence, which is a psych term. I don't use it as an acting teacher, which is like um, Mercutio and Tybalt despise each other. Yeah. Right. I also think Mercutio kind of like gets turned on by fighting with Tybalt, but let's say they're on, you know, they're in two houses, they hate each other. Right. So fighting Tybalt is um, antagonistic, very antagonistic, viscerally antagonistic, but and this is partly that Mercutio just feels like he's playing the whole time. But no, me and the the scene partner, I love it. I mean, we're totally in cahoots, right? We're totally allied and th- we're totally... So to me, the valence is like, if the characters are super negative, the actors are super positive, as long as they're both like activated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. similar, question mark? Okay, question for you. <laughs> that example you gave is interesting because it's an anger emotion, which is also a... Um, uh, uh, approach related emotion. Yeah. What about withdraw related uh-huh. emotions? What if you're in a, in a scene where you need to get away? You're like, I can't stand you right now. I can't be in the same room as you. Yeah. Is it then less likely that you're connecting with your fellow actor on a level of this is working? This no. is good. No, <gasps> no, no, you're totally connected <gasps> because you're also, I'm at least both l- looking at the scene from inside my internally, um, and also kind of from a director and outside eye. And the outside eye sees the whole picture, mm. which is, I don't know if it's like, we're making a pretty stage picture, or it's yeah. really important that I turn my back here because it tells the story. But that jumps me to, to Penelope and Odysseus. I get to play Penelope this summer, um, <sighs> and I've been thinking a lot about her. But uh, there's, <clears throat> and I'll just jump into a thought I had, which will lead to one connected to what you just said, which is Penelope and Odysseus are an amazing matched couple. They're both super um, attracted to each other and just a good team and like super smart and super clever. And he comes back after 20 fucking years, right? (laughs) And he's there in my house, but Athena has disguised him. So I don't know that he's my husband. Um, He knows of course that I am. And so my question there is what resonance, these two characters have a ton of resonance, right? They love each other but she doesn't know it's Odysseus. So as actors, with the director's help, how do we express to the audience that these two people, how do we physically express to the audience that these two people are attracted to each other, love each other, without yet her knowing that this is her husband. And it's in the text she talks about like, oh my gosh, you're like the coolest stranger who's ever come. And like, (laughs) I just want to keep talking to you. And you know about Odysseus. Tell me about Odysseus. I really like this vocal quality. Do you like this quality? (laughs) I think I'll do this for Penelope. (laughs) It's a totally new take on it. I like it. (laughs) But she's not straight out, you know, until the very end embracing him. At the end... Uh, which is similar to what you were just saying about withdrawing, is she finally has enough proof that it's Odysseus. So she comes down the stairs and sees him in the hall, and her uh, maidservant has said, this is, it's actually Odysseus. And her son is like, this is Odysseus. And he's probably no longer doesn't look like Odysseus. And the stage direction is like, they don't, he's up against one wall, and she's up against the other. And Telemachus, her son, chides her and is like, why, how, talk to your, talk to dad, you know? <laughs> and then we're like, you have to go. And I'm like, I, I promise you, Telemachus, we know each other. We have signs to, to, to confirm that we are each other's, right? And then Odysseus also chides her a little bit. It's like, woman, like what? You're being so hard on me. Like I'm here, you know? And she says, 
she says, I don't, I, anyway, she says like, I, this is not pride on my part, scorn or wonder. Like, I just can't believe it's you. So, so what is that? It's interesting. Cause there's so much, there's so much attraction in love and eventually they embrace, but, but at the beginning of the scene, there is so much distance. So it doesn't answer your question. It's sort of an example though, of how the characters in that one moment, she isn't resonating with him, mm. even though that's ultimately what she wants. Because cognitively, she might feel it's him in her heart. Yeah. But cognitively, she can't quite admit that it's... So I think what's interesting about her is that kind of her... I think her physical experience with Odysseus and her kind of brain experience with Odysseus are are don't yeah. agree with each other. And, they're, and it's when that's brought to her attention that she <laughs> freaks out a little bit. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, right. Um, I have a bunch of ideas about physical empathy. Uh, The other question that I'm fascinated with is how do we behave as an actor on stage to invite participation with, say, a co-actor or even Mm. the audience? How do we invite these people in the room with us to share the experience with us? What steps do we take to invite an empathic relationship to character? Um, and I think that's especially interesting question now that we are beginning to share space yeah. again. Um, you know, I know, for example, in Grounded, the one woman play, because it's just one person on stage, that character and actor must engage that audience pretty directly, making eye contact, full front, yeah. like facing them, um, speaking directly to individuals. It was really important that the lights were on so that mm. I could look in people's eyes, even with their masks on, and to really make connect with individual actors rather than just a kind of a wash of looking at them. Um, yeah, just what does that mean to invite participation with, you know, and, 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 perhaps you have a dual focus of you're on stage with someone and you're inviting the audience in and how do you, um, I don't have an answer. I really just have a question, but I like the question, which is like, how do you tell this story with as much invitation, right? To participate in it. And that to me is physical empathy, right? That's resonance or it's, it's, it's inviting the, the audience to resonate with you. It is. I do think that a successful audience experience is one of resonance, right? It is one of synchronization and appropriate responding, which might be different, right? Like if it doesn't necessarily mean that it is identical emotional responding to what the character is, it is portraying. Um, but it is, it is, it is the appropriate response sort of to that. And, or a, a, a an appropriate response. The first thing that comes to mind when you said, how do you invite an audience in is you cheat uh-huh. <laughs> all of the different ways. Yeah. You, you basically try to tick as many of the boxes as you can that you would invite an actual person into the conversation. Yes. So what does cheating out mean when mm-hmm. you cheat out toward the audience, right? Mm-hmm. There's something about seeing someone's entire face. This is why masks are so difficult Mm -hmm. in some ways. There's something about seeing someone's entire face that makes you feel invited to Mm -hmm. understand what's going on Mm -hmm. with them. And that is why a good director won't let you turn three quarters of the way away from the audience, at least not for long, unless that at that point you are demonstrating that that person is closed off to being, to being understood. Right. Um, You know, and, and I think, I think that's the, I think all of the things that you do 
to take care around the fourth wall yeah. are invitation actions. Yeah, and I love that you brought up the fourth wall because, of course, talking to the audience is breaking the fourth yes. wall, right? Not having one. But often, and again, in this case of Grounded, uh, I'm vacillating between looking straight to the sharing the story with the audience and also living inside of it. And those happen really simultaneously. And so living inside of it, sometimes there is a fourth wall, I guess, in this, mm, another way of saying that, what I mean to say by that is I am architecturally placing people in the space with me. So Eric is in front of me to the left. Yeah. Uh, Sam is, you know, to the right of me. The commander is right in front of me. The screen that I'm staring at 12 hours a day is directly in front of me. And so by having really specific eye contact or focus on particular imagined places and people that invites people in and it helps them in their brains really fill in I think fill in the picture yeah I think part of inviting people into the space is also making them feel comfortable yeah and giving them enough information at the right time right I think there's something about yeah. and this is the job of the playwright Yep. I think to to ease into the story in a way that makes the uh, it clear to the audience that they're there, that their timing is right for when they're joining the story. Yeah. If that makes sense, yeah. um, and I think that in that way, some of the rituals around audience, in terms of the lobby experience, the playbill, the dimming of the lights, all of the cues that let you know what's happening next. Yeah. I think that is how you translate from the audience as patron to oh, nice. the audience as observer of the action. Yeah. Um, I think that helps ease and signal that transition to again, make people feel comfortable and yeah. let them know just like that moment before you start an audition yeah. where you can signal to the panel with your breath. Yeah. It's okay. I'm yeah. telling you, I think a good, a good person doing an audition signals at every single moment yeah. whether or not they're interacting with the panel as the performer or as the character. Yeah. Because when you don't signal that, it's really freaking weird. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it makes everybody in the room uncomfortable. And so I think a lot of the theatrical experience is intentionally or unintentionally built around making that signal clear so that people feel comfortable yeah. and so that they're given the green light. It's okay. It's okay to feel with these people now. And that's why dinner theater is so freaking weird because you're <laughs> like you're in eating. the world and yeah. it's like, did you want creme brulee? Yeah, yeah, and it's that's like, weird. super weird. I love, I go to dinner theater, nothing against, <laughs> I don't think that dinner theater there. I mean, I think Colorado has some amazing, uh, some amazing dinner theater companies, yeah. But it's just always jarring to me, like yeah, the intermission yeah. experience, especially. Yeah. So that that to me ties just to add to inviting people in is you have to show up physically and vocally, and yeah. and so I think this idea of breath, which I um, could talk endlessly, and we'll try not to talk endlessly, but the deeper you breathe in your body, the more of your body you use, it creates more relaxation, which allows you to be more receptive to the environment. And it also makes you actually physically more present. So if you're breathing and you're making sound with your whole torso instead of just your neck, you're actually going to appear bigger or more there because you actually are more there. It's weird. <laughs> and then and your voice is more there. And I think by implicitly taking 
as you're saying time, like taking time in an audition to first be Kateri and then transition into the character or characters and taking space, then that invites the audience in. And it requires so much focus yeah. that eating dinner next to it, I feel like kind of breaks the, <laughs> the spell of it, right? Yeah. Um, I met my, uh, I went to see my mom this uh, weekend and my stepmom and I saw a friend and I saw my dear college professor, Peter Lobdell, which I had done uh, Waiting for Godot with, totally illegal. There's three women in it. There's not supposed to be any women in it. And he said, do you remember how I directed you guys? I directed you guys in a way I never had done before. I was like, well, what? remind me. And he said, I would ask you to first, before you spoke a line, do a gesture, like just improvise a gesture. And then speak the line. And that slowing down the process, making it not automatic, but effortful and very conscious, slowing it down with first gesture and then line, invited the scene partner to respond with a gesture and then a line. So it felt like Meisner on crack. Like it's not just <laughs> the repetition and responsiveness of words. My first thought it's, was that's what waiting for Gatto needs is more time. It's space time. between lines. No, no, no. We sped it up. We sped it up. This is just in this is just in rehearsal, I right? It, I get it, I get it. But I was like, oh, it's an invitation to your scene partner to respond. And rather than sticking gesture and words on top of each other, which ultimately one would do, is by in rehearsal, mm -hmm. breaking it, slowing it all down, is you're giving that scene partner more information yeah. to respond to. So this brings us to another sort of distinction between, you know, e I think this this conceptualization of cognitive versus physical versus emotional um, all being equally um, equal access points is maybe not the best representation because uh, they're handled by different parts of our brain and our bodies that Great. lend themselves to slower, more deliberative processing in the case of cognitive representation or faster, more potentially automatic and maybe going along with automatic has the potential to be less consciously accessible in the case of physical oh, resonance. Okay. And so I think that there, that the accessibility of these points into the cycle is different at different stages in the rehearsal cycle. Great. And that's probably why you start with table work and you don't get on your feet and do work for two weeks and then say, let's all sit down and talk about this now. I mean, right. maybe some people have a process that works that way. Right. That sounds like a very academic process to me. Like maybe in at college, like yeah. in theater programs, people yeah. do that because part of the experience is, is reflection and an academic categorization of what's going on. Yeah. But in terms of, but in terms of moving toward a goal, and we've talked about this in the past, that the goal on stage is that all of the business, all of the blocking and the lines and the executables, um, no longer require deliberative attention, no longer require you checking the, the the list in your mind, the outline of of A, B, you know, yeah. one, two, three, yeah. so that you are receptive yes. to um, yeah. environmental changes yeah. and and things like that. And so, if you think about the rehearsal process as transitioning from a more um, a more taxing, yeah, and more deliberative and more effortful um, and more uh, cognitive way mm -hmm. of thinking about mm -hmm. things to something that is more automatic and embodied. Yeah. I think that that wouldn't be too far off. Oh, I love that. It does happen. I agree that table work 
starts a traditional rehearsal process and then you get up and move around. But there's been a couple instances where people go back to the table yeah, and it's been really helpful, not for a long time, maybe just to read through one or read through mm. a, a script and it returns the actor really to the words on the page yeah. and reminds them that those are just as important as what they're body and voice are doing. And it's a, it's a question we've asked during preparation is, you know, how much time should one spend? How much time based on character or story should one spend sitting and talking about it versus kind of getting up and starting the work? Um, yeah. And I think it depends on the play. You know, I think it totally depends on the play. And I think the other thing that really struck me in our first episode when Talia was talking about was that some of the effects that she was seeing, oh, it was Talia's response to Dennis, where Dennis was talking about some of the effects that he's seeing um, are um, correspondent with actual um, experience of get like of how many actual productions or projects that yeah, people yeah. are working on. You know, I think both you and I have had two experiences that are probably not totally uncommon. One is running into an extremely seasoned actor, like yeah. decades long actor. Yeah who if you try to talk to them about technique, they might say, oh, I don't really use that stuff anymore. Yep. Right? And then also working with someone who is a little bit less experienced, who is very eager and probably has a fair amount of sort of quote-unquote raw talent, who then decides, I'm just like that person. I also don't need my technique. And the answer is, no, 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 you do. Right, right. (laughs) And the reason for that is there's a, a muscle memory and an automaticity that comes with practice yeah. that you don't get to be able to tap into until you have those decades of experience, I right? I love that, yeah. And in my lab, we have these really um, standardized protocols, right? So when we do an experiment, we don't just let whoever's running the experiment do it however they want, right? We we end up saying in the published paper, we instructed all people in the lab to do A and then B and then C and then D. And so we need to make sure that whoever is running the experiment does A and then B and then C and then D. And usually we have a... Uh, a motley sort of, uh, you know, configuration of people. It's not just one person who runs all of the the, the people in the experiment. Yeah. So what we've done is we've actually made two different um, helpful kind of reminders. One is as people are learning to do the experiment, we have this like long, like usually it's for a normal experiment, it might be four or five pages long for like an fMRI per- experiment. It might be like 12 or 15 wow. pages long. That's yeah. literally every step you would need to know. Yeah. This is like the stage manager's binder of yeah. the experiment of like, if that person got hit by a bus, someone else could step and go, I've got it. Yeah, You yeah, click yeah. on start, you click on options, you know, like you do all of this. Yeah. But as you train people, after they've done the experiment two or three or five times, they start to think, I don't need this 15-page document. Right. You know, this is just weighing me down. So we've made this one-page checklist for them that's just one page, maybe front and back, like for fMRI, if you really need all those steps. And it, and I tell people physically print it out, physically put it on a clipboard and check it off with a pen for every single person. Because the moment that you think, oh no, I've done this before, I've got it, you forget yeah. a step. And yeah. it's an important step. Yeah. And then we can't use that person's data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's this transition from the very well explained but cumbersome document yeah. to this little checklist, but you still need the tune-up checklist yeah. because you Right. People running on autopilot are not always the best. Yeah. I love that you're moving us to our second topic. And I think it's time. I want to, but it's still tied to the first of, of 
building incrementally step by step using the 15 pages or the 20 pages of instructions to build yeah. character versus as you get older or more experienced, maybe you just have the checklist exactly. and finding that I will say that I don't always get it right. Like at this point, I've done enough acting that I do smush the different tools together. Sure. Right? And I might cognitive and emotional and script and script analysis and actioning and physical is all kind of get mushed together. But in the most recent experience, you know, as I'm learning lines, I did, I realized I was like, oh shit, I did too much audio listening and not enough on the page Mm. learning. And I needed to balance that more. So you always are um, calibrating and adjusting and tweaking the process, right? You're never done in figuring out what that, what that process is. Uh, So let's keep talking about this. So, so this to me ties, um, this idea of when uh, skills become more automatic yeah. as an actor ties, perhaps messy, but in my brain, ties nicely to um, a lot of what Danny was saying about mimicry being both conscious and unconscious. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if we want to jump into the neuroscience. I have a bunch of questions. And what frustrates <laughs> me is that I have this experience every time I work on a character, which is the effort and the deliberative task of, say, memorizing yeah. uh, the lines um, at some point becomes automatic yeah. or the deliberative process of figuring out staging with a director yeah. um, or stage combat, right, then becomes automatic. And what is happening in my brain <laughs> for that to become automatic? <laughs> Besides the fact that it just takes time, yeah. right? So so guide me. Give me, give me knowledge about yeah. what is happening. So I've mentioned before that one of the things that our brain really likes doing is noticing when things happen sequentially in time. Our brain is very sensitive to that. Um, and so because of that, our brain is really responsive responsive to contingencies. So if-thens, you know, if I push this button, then this light will turn on. If I, you know... Um, eat, if I eat this, uh, treat, my tummy will explode later. (laughs) I mean, like in the bad poopy way, (laughs) um, you know, and, and we learn those things, uh, over time and our brain starts to anticipate, um, what will happen next by the earliest possible cue that it can. In some ways, I think if, if I were to anthropomorphize our jaw, our brain's kind of goal in life is to become perfect predictors of uh, a, oh. a perfect predictor of what's happening next. Because yeah. if you have perfect knowledge about what's happening next, you can then prepare all of the correct actions ahead of time and you're set for everything. But you can't do that as an actor. You can't do that as an actor. Yeah. But what that means is that um, repetition yeah. in sequence. Yeah. Um, over time helps, um, sleep helps with this process. So, uh, it's hard to cram. It's hard to do like four run throughs in a day before opening night and have that be a good thing. So spreading them out over time. Um, and really, I mean, habits are, our brain in a really oversimplified cartoon version um, of our brains, Hmm. our brains have two types of actions that they perform. One are habits, which are things that we do without a lot of effort or mm-hmm. sometimes thought, right? So you think about um, driving on your commute every day, um, which maybe after the last uh, year and change has not been as regular of an occurrence. Right. But when you do that every day or most days of the week, most of us get into this habitual state where we could get home and toss our keys on the counter and someone could say which lights were red and which ones were green on your way home and which crosswalks had people in them yeah. and did you see any green cars as you drove and you'd be like i have no freaking idea yeah. right like i when people say i was on autopilot right they mean they didn't need 
to expend any effortful energy to right. problem solve because how cumbersome would it be if it were if our brains were required to say every single time we drove home yeah. turn left at this stop sign you know turn right like we just we don't think about it we just we just do it and, and it's this sort of uh less effortful and it's important for our survival like we can't yep. we can't take in all the information that yeah. happens um every moment that gets me thinking about a Radio Lab episode about things slowing down, I think. And one was time and the fact that we, when we're in a precarious situation, maybe a car accident oh, or yes. something, we think time slows down. Yeah. And it, you know, so they studied and like, does time yeah. slow down? No, of course it doesn't slow down. But your brain is take in order to take care of you, your brain is taking in so yes. much more information to protect you yes. and to keep you alive. Yes. So subjectively, when you are engaged in one of these more habitual behaviors, yeah. it feels as though time goes very quickly. Yeah. Um, so then my question, my conundrum is we want the actor's deliberative, physical, you know, intellectual work to become somewhat automatized, right? Yeah. Because we need repetition. We need to give the impression to the audience that we're doing it as if for the first time. So by automatizing it, it actually creates spontaneity. And yet, it is never rarely an actor's job to kind of not be mindful of that yes. moment. To not kind of distract. Of course we do. Mm -hmm. So so isn't that a weird – that's such a paradox of acting. Which it is. is. The external behavior is automatic, but your internal relationship to it is – not it's as if for the first time yeah i agree and i think so the so the flip side i didn't actually describe the other types Sorry, of my behaviors it's okay <laughs> the flip side are these more deliberative actions right okay. are these things that you are more planful and proactive about so yeah. the habitual actions are a little bit more reactive to the environment which ties to what you were just saying but the more deliberative types of behaviors are things that you have to consciously remind yourself oftentimes they involve some self-talk of actually like walking yourself yeah. through the steps of what you're doing and so for example you know when I get asked this question a lot, but it's usually not people who are like, how do I become a better actor? It's usually people who are like, how do I form an exercise routine? How do I form oh. this healthier routine? There's something I don't do routinely and I want to do it routinely. And the answer is you use that deliberative part of your brain yeah. in order to convince yourself to do it for long enough that it starts to become habitual. Because again, it, it, it literally just is time and repetition. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, it's not more exciting yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is consistency and time and repetition. But... I also agree with you that even in my driving example, yeah. you don't want to be on full autopilot because you do need to be responsive to your environment, right. right? You do need to make sure that you brake if a truck is running the red light and you're turning left or whatever else. And I think that for something that is pretty that for something that rarely has um variation in it, like yeah. a, like a commute home, the amount of mindful focus that you need to have is relatively low. Yeah. Whereas on and on stage, I think some people would argue the amount you need to have, need yeah. to like go through the actions is low. But in an ideal state, you want to dial it up more, yeah. at least above the like driving home of yeah. your routine commute level so that you have that presence that we talked about, yeah. that focus. Yeah. Um, so that you are not dialed out that you're that you're dialed in i'm beginning to think that um you know performing is not binary like and and <laughs> and that that and, and there these things aren't mutually exclusive that as mm -hmm. you're performing you're actually coexisting inside both deliberation yeah and 
automation or automatic. And I think that's a really exciting place to be. Um, it gets me, I've been thinking a lot about performative as an adjective that's negative, mm. like how people are performing sort of virtue signaling and oh, right yeah. saying things to, um, because they know they'll land with people and they'll, they'll look like really like good and educated and, you know, woke people. Um, and, and, and that being fully negative, but I, I want to push back against that and, and sort of try to tie it to acting, which is like, I think even that has value and authenticity. The idea of like signaling that you care about this thing that's important in the world right now. And I don't know if it's a messy, it might be too crude a uh, no. correlation, but I think with performance is I'm going to deliver as an actor, I will deliver a line a very specific way, perhaps not even a spontaneous way, and certainly a gesture, not a spontaneous way. And even if it's not spontaneous, as in, in other words, even if it doesn't just in that moment just generate from me, it's a thing that's pre-planned, it still can move the audience. It yeah. still succeeds in authentically telling the story. So I think we can be a little puritanical in like, is it authentic or is yeah. it performative? Right. There's my Penelope voice again. And I want to be <laughs> like, um, I think you can do both at the same time. Well, and I actually, um, I, I will, I would argue that maybe you can't always do both at the same time, but that it's a useful process to ping pong back and forth between yeah. the two things. And uh. I think when it comes to, um, sort of activism and allyship, right? I think a lot of times when people are accused of being performative, it's when their role is a, as an ally and they're trying to figure out for themselves, yeah. what do I say? I'm not a member of this group. I want to acknowledge that this is on my radar, but yes. I don't want to make it about me. And I actually think that's a trial and error process. I and agree. I think that some of, I'm, I'm not an expert on being an ally, but I would argue that some of the best allies started off by being rather inauthentically performative. And then they settled into something that is more authentic or over time, the very same action that at the beginning was performative becomes authentic. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. I don't think that I, while I think there's value, just like there's, I think there's value in, in pointing out this particular one has a performative ring to it. Mm -hmm. This one doesn't. Mm -hmm. I think that helps people hone their, their sensibility about it, yeah. but there shouldn't, I mean, with any of, with any of the activism, act, activism thing, I think what, where you get in trouble is when it becomes an enduring label to say right. you are forever and always only a performative ally right, right. rather than this thing you said was performative. Oh, right. I guess it kind of was. Right. Then the question becomes, how do I make that more authentic? How do I back that up with action or rootedness or whatever yeah. it is that, to, that makes it more authentic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as a, uh, it hap uh, yes, as an actor, I feel like acting is totally trial and error. I feel like the initial process is a lot of flailing and yeah. experimenting and getting it wrong. <laughs> there was a gesture I did in Grounded that we actually cut. I maybe because I could never perform it, it was too performative. But I actually think, unless Rick was just being too nice to me, it didn't fit in that moment in the story. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, in terms of investigating Penelope now before rehearsals, I'm getting a lot of information as I'm, I'm, I'm not on my feet practicing her. It's not a physical relationship yet. It's a, I have no physical empathy yet for her. It's more I know, me. I think you're starting to get there. I think I'm getting there <laughs> with my words and how I say them. Um, it's, uh, it's me negotiating and speaking the words out loud and I'm getting so much information about her, yeah. but it's not set. Like I'm still yeah. trial and erroring and experimenting and still trying to 
figure it out. Right. And I think that that relates to, again, what Dennis was talking about in the first episode about actors being more open and um, tolerant of uncertainty. Yeah. That, that a good actor will know just because it's not set, it's okay. Yeah. I haven't I haven't gotten on stage yet with the other people, so it's okay that this is an yes. in-between state. This yes. is just my relationship to yeah. her on the paper, and when I'm just starting to walk around my living yeah. room saying her words, not when I'm like on stage and doing it for real. <laughs> exactly. So actors, if you're listening, <laughs> here's my question for you, is what do you owe the character in terms of all of this preparation? Like, do you owe them... Uh, what does that character need for you to really unpack them? Is it that you spend a lot of time with the script and saying their words out loud and looking up words you don't know? Is it starting to embody them? What does that particular character need from you? And what is the cocktail <laughs> of, I don't know if cocktail's right, what is the ingredients, yeah. right, of tools that you're going to use to play the mishmash of that particular character? And finally, Kateria said this beautiful thing a few days ago, which was like, we have limitless empathy, but we have limited time. Mm. So if you have limitless no that you have limitless empathy for your character, but you have limited prep time. So how are you going to spend that practice time, that prep time wisely, right? Um, I don't know. It's different for every for every character. I like that so much. I would like to jump into our third topic, which excites me so much. So Danny, I freaked out when Danny said, at their core, this was him with his like Dean hat on, or his Dean bow tie on. <laughs> you know, at, at the core. Um, oh, all sorry, dis- sorry about podcast people, Dean Danny wears bow tie on. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. But maybe when he ceases to be Dean, he'll cease, I doubt it. Oh, I think he will. I will think he cease the, the bow ties? I, I think it's a Dean thing. All right, we can ask him. Yeah. Um, uh, and also just, I'm going to, uh, say one more nice thing about Danny. He speaks so beautifully, like his voice and how he puts words together and makes thoughts I think are fantastic. He said all disciplines at their core are interdisciplinary. And that blew my freaking mind. (laughs) Um, and I asked about similarities to art and science and he said, and this may be the most important thing, they're both social and community based, um, and these, this idea of everything being social, again, that space between like you and your collaborators and synthesizing information, synthesizing disciplines in an interdisciplinary way is just so exciting to me. I just want to say that acting, I made a list, acting in terms of all the disciplines that acting is, it's psychology, it's historical, it's social, it's literary, it's public speaking, it's athletic, it's physical, it's vocal, it's about breath, it's intellectual, it's religious, uh, it's philosophical, it's musical, it's organizational, and there's more. Yeah. Um, but each of, sure. you know, when it's you- It's counseling, it's linguistics. It's counseling, it's, it's linguistics. Yeah. Yeah. Once you di- speech therapy. Yeah, and that the, this idea of of mastery of a thing is that you can talk about it or teach it or do it from a bunch of yeah. different angles. So that's what I sort of wish for our listeners that as an actor you can tackle that character and that role from this angle or this angle or this angle or this angle. Yeah. Um, someone from the career services folks here at DU came and visited one of my classes years and years ago, and they did this values exercise with us that I, of course, sat in the room and did with my class. And the exercise was to fill in the blank. I'm going to have you do it on the spot. Shoot. When it comes down to it in life, so we're zooming way out. When it comes down to it, it's all about what? Gut. Listening. Listening. Ooh, Anne, you gave me goosebumps, right? Yeah. So my class wrote things like, um, it's all about um, love. It's oh. all about um, doing your best. It's all about um, self-actualization, 
what mm. somebody said. Um, mine was, it's all about people. Yeah. Oh. But I think I'll actually amend it to be even broader, which would be, it's all about relationship. Yes. Right? It's all about juxtaposition yes. and, and relationship and whether that's with people or concepts or disciplines. And yeah, I think that there is something really deep about recognizing the relationship between things. Yes. So if you think about the analogical reasoning section of the SAT, for example, where kitten is to cat as baby is to what, right? Yeah. Grown up person. Yeah. <laughs> terrible, terrible item. <laughs> Adult. Sorry. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a test maker. Um, but the idea behind that section of the test is that it requires a deeper knowledge of the true meaning of a word yeah. to correctly identify it in relationship to something else than to just provide a definition. Yeah. Right? That it's the relationship between two things that is at the heart of their true meaning. And I think that when you think about academic disciplines, what maybe Dean Danny was trying to say is that to understand any concept from the perspective of one discipline is fine and is maybe a necessary step, sure. right? To understand human behavior from the lens of psychology is rich and and important. But if you think about that image of a, 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 a discipline in a yeah. silo, which yeah. we often inv invoke in academia, a silo is this column that is 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 uh, defined by its constant boundary, right? Yeah. It's, it's There's no... Um, circulation of air from the yeah. outside. It's stagnant. There's no way to make connections with other things. And so that's going to inherently limit your understanding. It's 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 hard to get a true understanding with something unless you understand how that thing stands in relationship to and in conversation with yeah. other concepts, disciplines, you know, thing, things like that. So I think in that way, deep understanding of disciplinary constructs must be at least a little bit interdisciplinary must take into account perspectives from other disciplines. Could, could you could you talk briefly about uh, self determination theory? Yeah, so um, I've been doing a little bit more reading into the positive psychology literature, which has always been very very relevant to my interest in emotion and emotion regulation. Um, but one um, aspect of positive psychology. Um, is self-determination theory, which if you think about it is a little bit of a kind of uh, limited Western take on what it means to have achieved some sort of ideal level of psychological functioning. But it focuses on three different dimensions that, that together jointly define sort of adaptive psychological functioning. And they are autonomy, Mm -hmm. So again, super Western notion mm -hmm. um, that this sort of individual notion of of uh, competence, but autonomy, mm. um, competence, um, feeling that you are uh, effective um, and and able to influence the world in a certain way, um, and relatedness or relationality, right? And and the the fact that relationality is sort of in there, I think, is really speaks to how central. Um, relationships with others and in this particular case they 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 mean social relationships social, yeah. yeah but you're also talking about idea bumping up idea to idea yeah, what yeah. You, what you, yeah. 
I mean, I think it's it's an interesting um, if if you were to anthropomorphize <laughs> academia or disciplinarity, yeah. right? That that um, that perhaps a discipline for a discipline to be at its sort of peak functioning, that perhaps. Um, people are also recognizing the relatedness of it to other disciplines. So and to, certainly an actor to be at peak functioning yeah. has to have a relational mindset. And I think there's both a simile and a metaphor. So figurative language, right? Like a yeah. simile is it's like it's, it's, mm, I want to backtrack to also antithesis, which so much of language in, in uh, dramatic text is this idea of antithesis and oh, bumping yeah. this idea off against this idea, off of this idea, off of this idea, off of this idea, off of this idea. And antithesis is peak relationality. Yes, exactly. Right? Right. Pa- like the, the types that like Shakespearean antitheses yeah. that give you goosebumps, yeah. it's because it's not just that these two things are opposed. You can find two things that are opposed really easily. Right. But when you two find two things that are so perfectly opposed, yeah. that are that are similar in yeah. every way but yeah. this one, it shines a, a spotlight yeah. on that one aspect yes. that makes them different and it's so clear. Yes, and in the English language of course there's perfect opposites like night and day. And they're imperfect opposites. You can also opposite the same word. So for example, yes. in grounded, the word linger and what that means to her at first is a really powerful, awesome, godlike thing. And then when she hits it a few pages later, it is the most demoralizing, mm. uh, demoralizing and and a kind of offensive action that she could do. And you're, oh, that's exciting when you use the same word and it actually means the opposite yeah. like a few pages later. The other thing I wanted to hit is is metaphor Im- imagery is mm-hmm. teaching uh, voice and and movement, especially voice and Kristen Linklater's voice in particular, is her technique is full of imagery. And all of my students are like jiving with some of the images. I mean, she throws a hundred at you and like I hope that five of them are useful to each student. But for example, the vibrations um, – you know, coming out of your body, which granted are really originating in your throat. She's saying that it's like a pool of vibration in your pelvis or even yeah. in your hip sockets, right? Or that the tr- the um, your diaphragm, right, which drops in order to allow more breath in, is like a trampoline, right? Yeah. That you, like a little mini version of you or your sound is like bouncing off mm-hmm. of. Now, again, your sound isn't actually there. No. This idea of like the sound being a chimney in your belly and the heat... <sighs> raising out of you. And then one of my students this quarter was like, the sa- I picture the sound being a lightsaber coming out of my mouth. I was like, that's so freaking cool. But <laughs> but I can promise you that every single one of these students is empowered by these images. And by empowered, what I mean is it allows them to actually do more physically than they would do without the images. Mm. So the fakeness of the image is fake. It's fictional. It's not anatomically correct. Yeah. And yet by their brain focusing on that image, it relaxes them. Yeah. It allows them to accomplish something more challenging physically. And I also think it takes ego out of it. I think it makes them less self-conscious. Yes. And therefore they can do more because they're not worried about their performance. They're focused on the image. I have no idea if this is backed up by the literature, but I have a hypothesis as to why. Yeah. A good metaphor is complete. A good metaphor is a closed system where you know all you need to know and it is efficient. You could spend so many pages describing how you feel before you get to a hamster on a wheel. Right. But if you just say hamster on a wheel, you're there. And so there's something where they can, it's not, they're not ignoring it. No. But you're getting them to put it in and you're getting it to to tuck it away in a pocket yeah. and it's doing its work yeah. and freeing up all the other stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. 
Yeah, images are amazing, and they're physical too. Like dancers, yeah. um, in terms of helping, like with balance and rooted, rudeness to the floor, you could imagine that your foot is like you know ten times as big. Yes, right? There's like a all those shoe. other like a snowshoe, yeah. right? Um, there's all, all of that. So, oh yeah, I mean, I, I we'll just keep talking totally. about metaphor. And totally. Metaphor. Yes, uh, I think that we have for two years now. We've been saying we should do a whole episode on metaphor, and so I think, we're gonna. I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, that's all I want. Do you want to add anything, Kadiri? I'm good. Yeah. All right. Thank you all. We'll we'll see you next season. See you next season. Everybody stay safe. Uh good luck good luck with uh handling your rejoining society panic. <laughs> it's real. Oh, bye. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our amazing uh podcast team, Jonathan, Michael, Jennifer, Cami, all of our guests, and some funding from the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. And finally, this amazing recording studio in the Lamont School of Music on campus. All of that is at the University of Denver. 